this morning, I pray that we would see the truth and that, God, our hearts would be truly changed by it. I pray that you'd give me strength. I pray, Lord, we'd learn from the life of King Manasseh. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. I've entitled this message, Radical Grace in the Midst of Idolatry. Radical Grace in the Midst of Idolatry. 2 Kings 21. As I said, we, we had a great week at camp. I, uh, kids are amazing. I, uh, one night I was walking through the uh, student center at Bryan College and I saw this one kid. He looked at me funny. I looked back at him funny and I said, how you doing, man? He said, uh, I'm good. I said, you having a good week? Yeah. I said, are you getting any sleep? He said, only in your sermons. <laughs> and I, I thought immediately about the kids my dad used to describe at camp. The ones that you would uh, teach how to swim in a bag with a cinder block at the bottom of the lake. That was the kid I thought of. I wanted to call my dad so bad. He would have loved that kid. I, I looked at him and I said, that's amazing. I said, that is amazing. I got to give you credit. That's incredible. But, uh, but we were studying uh, Elijah and Elisha. And it's funny how, or interesting how, even when you're in a series about uh, First and Second Kings, I don't think you realize how much I'm learning I, I, I'm learning all the time. There's so much I forget. There's so much I realize I don't know. And so uh, I'm learning with you. And uh, I learned so much more even by having to go back. You know, you look at it, you stay in it, you look at it, you stay in it, you go back, you overview. And uh, so much as I was looking at really the main reigns of uh, Ahab and Ahaziah. And, and so today I, I'm encouraged and excited to look at this with you. But we're going to look at Manasseh. Manasseh, 2 Kings 21. So let's read the 18 verses we're going to look at this morning. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hebzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he said in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if they only will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. And according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done these things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sins that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his father and was buried in the garden of his house in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. What a notorious ruler. When we look at Manasseh, he reigned from 695 to 642. And, and some interesting things there is that ultimately Judah is going to go into captivity to Babylon. The Babylonians are going to come in in 586. So when we look at this, we're still out about, at the end of his reign, we're still, you know, 40, 45 years away from this 586 siege. Um, and so that's important to note. Another thing that's important to note here is that Manasseh followed Hezekiah. He follows Hezekiah. And so when we look at his story, we're going to look at a lot of observations about the evil that he committed here in Judah. We start out and we look at he was 12 years old in chapter 21, verse 1. 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years, the longest of the reigns there. He reigned 55 years. His mother's name is mentioned. You come here and immediately did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. I think about Romans 12, where Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think that it's a fair uh, implication from that passage. It's actually clear is that if we're not having our minds renewed by the word of God, the alternative is disastrous. We become conformed. I heard years ago, you know, to be conformed to the world is to think like the world thinks. It's to laugh like the world laughs. It's to, it's to see the world the way the world sees it. And so you're living in a culture with, a, with an ideology that is separate from the word of God. So as Christians, one of the ways that we can be sure that we will be influenced in a negative way by the culture is to not submit to the, the transforming power of the word of God. What happens? We, we can learn from, from Judah. We can learn from this. According to the despicable practices of the nations, and then it says he rebuilt the high places. This is unbelievable. Hezekiah had finally turned turned the page, you know, that he had finally wiped them out. And here he is. Uh, it's fascinating what we don't know this mentioned, but early on, he rebuilds the high places. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. 
as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. I, I was looking at a lot of uh, back in First Kings, you know, when we were talking about Elijah on Mount Carmel, First Kings 18, and we see all this happening. And, and going back and reviewing it, Baal was the god of rain, wind, and fertility. And so Asherah was the counterpart of Baal, the female counterpart. And depending on how people viewed it, could have been Baal's mom, Baal's wife, the fertility was a big issue. And in looking at all of the immoral practices, I think it, it, it should astonish you not really astonish you, but I think it's, it's really fascinating that so much homosexuality came out of the cult of Baal and Asherah. And when we look at this, I was reading more. One, one individual said, this basically boils down to sex, status, and prosperity. Sex, status, prosperity. And I want you to think about something. The love of the world is described in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. When we are having this sexual identity craze, literally just pushed at us from all angles, when everything that we see about Pride Month is just on display everywhere we look. Sometimes we have to be, we have to approach it with humility, but we have to approach it through the lens of the truth. Because if you get people that are truthful, that are arrogant and self-righteous, you've got major problems. But we need to look at it discerning. We need to understand what is going on and why does the culture act like the culture acts? What is taking place in the sexual revolution? What does it reveal? What does it display? I think one thing that's significant is to understand Romans says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for other things. And so one of the realities that we have to look at is there's nothing new under the sun. When you exchange the glory of the immortal God, you always embrace the fleshly and the worldly. And so the same roots, when you look at a community, when you look at a nation, when, when there's heterosexual, homosexual, immoral sin that permeates a culture, it has the same roots of the Baal and the Asherah. The exact same roots. Why? Because at the heart of the rejection of the creator, is to exchange the glory of the immortal God. And where is that going to lead? It's going to lead to the height of perversion. It's going to lead to the height of sex, status, and prosperity. If you think about it, so much of what we see in the world and what's emphasized today has to do with people who either are chasing immorality or are chasing status because they don't want to not fit. They want to fit in. You think about it. You've got these people who have come out of Egypt. You have these people who have the promises given to the patriarchs, and now they're living in a foreign land, and the temptations of the gods of the land give them so much temptation to want to fit and be like their neighbors, to want to embrace any type of thought that would suggest that their crops might actually be better off if they went after 
the God of the crops. And you look at this, and it's sad to say, but there's nothing new under the sun. When it goes into the New Testament times, and even the gods change, and you see Zeus mentioned a lot, and you see other gods mentioned a lot, it is not really changed at the core. At the core is the same root of exchanging the glory of the immortal God. You make a bad exchange. Anytime you make that exchange, it's a horrible exchange. It leads to destruction. It leads to disaster. And that's what King Manasseh had done. You look in verse 3, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. When we look at all of this, we find that he embraced everything evil that you can imagine. You get into verse 4, he built altars um, in the house of the Lord. He built altars in the house of the Lord. This is shocking. I mean, you go back to when we started Kings and we went from David to Solomon and we saw the Solomon's desire to prepare not only a faithful house that God had called him to build, but it was to be holy unto the Lord. And now you, you look at all that's changed. You look at the unified kingdom of Israel and Saul, David, Solomon. And now you go all the way to this point. You go from, uh, you know, back around 970 B.C., and now we're all the way at around 695, 970, 695, uh, about 300 years. 300 years, this has changed. Now the house of the Lord has pagan idols in it. Manasseh, following the ways of Ahab, following the ways of the nations. And and, in verse after verse, he He burns his son as an offering. Again, you know, the influence of Molech. He used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. I mean, you've got sorcery. You've got this type of spiritism going on where they're seeking to communicate with the dead. You see this whole principle with Saul and, and 1 Samuel and all of that was taking place in those that pagan ritual. And in in every one of these, he is doing evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. We've looked at this before because we've seen other examples of, of, of taking your child's life. It was a way to appeal to the gods. Everything you see here, he's seeking to find what only God can provide. It goes back to the adage that wherever you seek to exchange God, you're looking for answers you think you're going to find somewhere else. And so it goes back because a lot of people think we're off the hook. We're like, hey, man, I'm not, I don't have an Asherah pole in, in my house and I don't have altars to Baal. But we find at the very heart of it is when we seek to replace God with other things that we seek to give us what only God can provide. It's what idolatry is all about. And so you keep going and more and more is amazing Verse 13, fortune-telling, omens, mediums, necromancers. You keep going. He did evil. He provoked him to anger. Verse 7, in the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he said in the house, which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He's, he's living just like Ahaz did back in uh, chapter 16. 
And, and then what's really, really just keeps getting worse. He, he dismissed the warning. We'll look at that in a minute. He dismissed the warning that God gave in the law. But then it says in verse 16, he shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Jewish tradition says that Manasseh was the one who killed Isaiah, the prophet. We don't know that for sure, but according to history, he was the one who sawed Isaiah in two and killed many other prophets. I want us to look at some characteristics of his idolatry, some characteristics of his idolatry, because I think that we can see a link between our sin, God's grace, depravity, uh, deception. The first one that we see I, that really grabbed me was one characteristic, one observation about Manasseh's idolatry, it deceived his heart. It deceived his heart. It deceived his heart in many ways. You could come up with a list and we could add to one I have this morning. One, it deceived his heart concerning God. It deceived his heart concerning God. You know, uh, think about something. If you look at it from this perspective, I want you to think about how the prophets were manifesting to the people the foolishness of their idols. And, and even, you know, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, when you have the showdown and you've got the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, and you've got all of them up there at Carmel, if the Lord, he is God, then follow him. And he's appealing to all the people and the people are there. And what is he doing over and over? And he's showing them. I mean, he came on the scene, Elijah did, and immediately declared a drought until God would provide rain. And yet Baal was the one who was supposed to be able to provide the rains. And you remember throughout all that episode, even at the end, where he prays, which seems to be a fulfillment of James, where he prayed for rain. And then what happened? The man comes back and says, there's a cloud like my size of a fist. And then what takes place? He's like, no, keep, keep looking, keep looking seven times. And then what happens? It begins, it's going to get rain. It's going to pour. And even then, when, when Ahab's on his chariot and he's headed back to Jezreel and God enables Elijah, his prophet, to run ahead of Ahab. And it's another picture of the grace of God intervening in Ahab's life to say, don't look to the Baals. Don't look to the Asherah. I am the living God. And he rejects it. He rejects it. You, you go into 2 Kings chapter 1. We looked at this several months ago. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, you remember Ahaziah falls through the lattice and he's sick. And in 2 Kings 1 verse 2, what does he do? He, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Remember over in the Philistia area. If anybody would have known the history, it should be Ahaziah. And what was the history of King David? He, as a young shepherd boy, had taken down Goliath of the Philistines. And now you're going to go to Philistia to find your salvation, to find your help in time of trouble. And what was it that was said there in 2 Kings chapter 1? Remember the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah Arise, 
go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, and here's what he was to say, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub? Deception, complete deception concerning God, concerning the living God. And Elisha comes on the scene. You remember those series of miracles he does in 2 Kings 3, 4? And what does he do? Remember he that crazy, amazing miracle? It shows power over nature, power over armies, power over debt, power over infertility, power over death, power over drought. Were those just random miracles of the miracle man? No, they were God's way of revealing to the people, Baal is dead but I am the living God. And what do we learn in this? When we go after idols, we are, we are deceived about the nature and the character of God. I wonder today, we'll look at this at the end, the last verse in 1 John, guard yourselves from idols. But I wonder this morning, what or who are you looking to to provide you what only God was designed to give you? You know, it gets real personal. Could be bass fishing. Could be hunting. Could be sports. Could be fitness. Could be relationships. Could be money. It could be whatever your heart longs for and desires more than that of God. And yet at the end of it, the reality is if you push back the curtains and you saw what was hidden behind the stage, you would find that it's this thought process that says, this will give me what I'm looking for. And that's exactly what was taking place with Ahab. That's exactly what was taking place with Manasseh. It was a deception in his heart, not only about God, but about his word, about his word. You remember in Psalm it, David says, a Psalm of David, Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now notice verse 10. This is significant. By God's grace, even through sin, David came to understand that the law of God was more to be desired than gold. You think about it, like, what do you value? A lot of people in the world would rather have gold than the word of God. But, but it takes wisdom to see that God is more worthwhile than gold. But it's deception if you think the things of this world are greater than the things of God. And he goes on, David says, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. And it was God's word that came to the people and God had revealed and I, at verse 8 of 2 Kings 21, and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my service Moses has commanded them. They were deceived about God. They were deceived about the word, its goodness, 
its gracious warnings, they were deceived. Deceived completely. There was warning. I tell you, it's so sad uh, just watching the news about that submersible that went down to the Titanic and then hearing about a lot of the reports. I was curious to look back at interviews with the CEO when he was talking about it prior to this attempt. And so many were like, hey, uh, why don't you get uh, this regulated? Why don't you get safety protocols? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? There's no need to try this material. It's already been done like this. And every one of the warnings he turned away from. You see, when we look at these warnings, we see the warnings like Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah. They are calling out to the people and they're saying, look, go another way. Look at what's happened to your big brother in the north. Look at what took place at 722. Look at what took place. Now think about it. It's only been 40 years, 40 years since that destruction of Assyria capturing Israel. They're not heeding the warning. I remember years ago, I was fishing with my dad and my, my grandfather. You would have loved my, you knew my dad and, and you would have loved my grandfather too. He was an amazing man. We lost him quick. He died at 61, but uh, he was a mess. And we were on the boat one day and I was probably 13. And my dad called my grandpa Pops. And he's like, Pops. And there was this storm. Have you ever been on the water where it just looks like you're about to die? <laughs> and, uh, and my dad was like, Pops, I think we might need to go in. And, and Grandpa said, nah. He said, I've seen this 100. He goes, he's, he goes, the forecast is always wrong. He said, if you look, and he, got, he had this theory. And even as a kid, I was thinking, I love you, Grandpa, but that sounds crazy. And I was looking at him. And, and dad had a sort of a, a strange look too. And, and we, we, we followed his advice and we kept fishing and it got uglier. It got, I remember trying to get back to Wolf Teaver Creek on Chickamauga thinking this is my last boat ride. And there was like, and the whole time I was thinking grandpa didn't need the warning. <laughs> the warning was there. There was as many signs as you could possibly imagine. And he didn't heed the warning. But yet we look at this. Don't miss the warning. He was deceived about his heart in relation to God, in relation to the word. But we not only see that one observation about his idolatry is that it, it deceived his heart. But the second thing is his idolatry led others astray. It led others astray. You've heard this a million times, but when what we do affects others, no man's an island. You see it here. When we follow after idols, it has a profound effect on others. It's a reminder of men, there's little people watching you. Ladies, there's little people watching you. There's coworkers, there's friends. We can't forget this. And there's three verses here that demonstrate this. Verse nine, but they did not listen and Manasseh led them astray. He led them astray. I, uh, I heard years ago about, I heard someone put it like this. Have you ever been around someone that, uh, by God's grace, their life spurred you on to righteousness, being in their presence? You, you walk away and, and you just you sense a desire to follow God. I've had friends like that over the years that just 
being around them, even in the simple things, made an impact on me. But we have to ask the question, ultimately, does my life spur people on or does it lead them astray? Does it lead them astray? And in verse 9, he leads them astray. Um, it, it's so sad. You know, you see it not only listed in 2 Kings, but more evil than the nations around them, more evil than the nations before them. You see it in verse 10 and 11, too, in this chapter. And it says in verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. He led them. The text refers to it as making them. I think about, I was reminded of that precious little slave girl when Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy. And you remember that, that little girl, she had been captured by the Syrians and taken over into Syria. And yet she knew about the God of Israel and she was concerned about her, uh, the, the master of the house, Naaman. And she wanted it to be told that, that there was a prophet in Israel who could handle this. That was a young girl who God had given a heart to follow him. And yet I think about when there's ungodly leaders and when there's adults that are following after idols, I think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Look at verse 16 of 2 Kings 21. You see it in verse 9. You see it in verse 11. You get down to verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin. Again, it's repeated three times, verse 9, 11, and verse 16. It reminds me of the passage in Revelation. In, in Revelation chapter 2, when this woman, it appears what he's doing is he writes, I think it's to the church at Thyatira, and what he's doing is he's not necessarily calling out a woman named Jezebel, but a woman in the church who was going after immorality and idolatry. And here's what he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Same idea, a seduction, a seduction to that which is ungodly, a seduction to that which is wicked, a seduction to that which is unrighteous. Think about today. It's something we can all pray about, isn't it, parents? It's something we can all pray about, teenagers. Think about the kids around you at school. Think about the kids around you, parents. It's like so many times the way we live, it literally seduces our kids to follow in a different way. It could be an abuse of alcohol. It could be promiscuous lifestyle. It could be a devaluing of the things of God, where, where literally the parent has no regard for the things of God. And, and the kid is seduced the kid is led astray into an ungodly approach. It could be just kids observing what their parents love. On and on. 
and on. I, I, I was with uh, the director of the camp this week, for those that were at camp, Joe Wagner. And uh, Joe lives in a town. He lives in Decoin, Illinois. And his buddy runs the, uh, the funeral home. And Joe always gets the funerals where nobody has a minister. So he's the, like the funeral man. And uh, I'm always like, man, you do more funerals than anybody I've ever heard of. And he'll do four or five a week sometimes. And he told me, he says, he was talking, he goes, man, I've got, you got to know Joe, but he loves the Lord. He's a great guy. He's just funny. He, he was like, I got these questions to ask. And he just started rattling them off. But they were pointed. They were important. He said, you know, I like to sit down with the family. One word to sum up your parents. One word, what did your parent love? How would you answer that about yourself? What do you love? You know, at the end, it's like what, what, what Manasseh loved ended up having incredible consequences on the kingdom of Judah. But not only do we see an observation about idolatry, it deceived his own heart, number one. Number two, it led others astray. But number three, it reaped a sorrowful judgment. It reaped a sorrowful judgment. It's so sad. Uh, the foolishness, the absurdity, the stupidity of his choices. And the root of all was the fleshly, the sensual, the pragmatic. And then you, you read in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And then we read in verse 8, this sorrowful judgment announced in verse 8 to 11. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wonder. He speaks about that warning. But verse 9, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray. And then we read about this judgment. Verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. We read in verse 12, Therefore thus says the Lord, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. This is where it's important to look at the, the harmony passage. What I mean by that is, is 2 Chronicles 33. In verse 11, it says this, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. This was a short stint of judgment. We'll see something really surprising in a moment. But the ultimate judgment that seems to be referred to here is the judgment that's going to come upon Judah in 587 B.C., 586 B.C. Look at this judgment described. It's described here. It's described here in the language of these verses. In verse 12, you see, notice how it's, I was one commentator, Ralph Davis, he says, you know, it's a, it's a judgment. It, it shows the severity. It, it will cause you to tingle. Anybody who hears of this judgment, their ears will tingle. And then we read not only that, but he says the standard of the judgment. We see in verse 13, he speaks of it as a plumb line. God doesn't 
use different plumb lines for different people, the standard of his holy character is the standard of judgment. And he speaks about that in verse 13, the comprehensive nature of the judgment. Have you washed a dish lately? You take that off the dish quick, don't you, with a wet rag? I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. And then he speaks about the helplessness in this type, the severity of the judgment. He speaks about in verse 14, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage. All of this to show the judgment of God is real. and We can't understand the grace and the mercy of God if we don't understand the wrath and the judgment of God. Many people, they don't want to say anything about the wrath or the judgment of God. But the problem is, if we only have a God of love and mercy and grace, we don't have a holy God. The holiness of God is revealed in the way he responds to sin. The holiness of God is revealed in the way that he judges. And we see this judgment that takes place. But, but here this morning, if you've not looked at Second Chronicles you're going to be blown away. You think it's over. We've got three marks of idolatry. We've got deception of your heart. We've got leading others astray. We've got a sorrowful judgment. But look at 2 Chronicles 33. Look at verse 12. It's unbelievable. We read a little bit more to the story. Shocked by grace. <laughs> Verse 12, and when he was in distress, what distress is it speaking about? When he was taken with hooks by the Assyrians. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Friend, today you might find yourself thinking, my life resembles in ways King Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21. But what we see here in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 33, I believe with all my heart is a foreshadowing of the ultimate grace of Jesus Christ at the cross. When sinners, by the grace of God, recognize their inability, they recognize their bankruptcy, they recognize the tainted nature of their heart and they look upon the grace and the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. They experience a cleansing. That's the power of the gospel. You see, if we're not careful, the self-righteous side of us, the flesh, would like to read 2 Kings at a distance and go, yep, had it coming to him. But the problem is this. If we can't relate to King Manasseh, it very well may be that we don't understand the gospel. If you can't see yourself in the very things Manasseh was doing, you may not understand the gospel at all. Because in Manasseh is a picture of all humanity. The wondering, the reveling, the destructive nature of his flesh. We look at this and we see hope. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. 
And afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, carried it around Ophel, raised it to a very great height. He put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. It's as if now his mind has changed about God, and now the prosperity that he, he, he walks in is part of that word, is the idea of divine wisdom and guidance. He's acting as a king. He's acting in a rightful way. In verse 15, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered it on sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. This fourth observation about the idolatry of Manasseh is that it was superseded by God's grace. Amen? You may be thinking, well, if you tell me what the word superseded means, I'd do better. I had to look it up. It was the word that came to me. Has that ever happened to you? It's the word that means to cause, to set aside, to take the place or position. God's grace took the place of Manasseh's idolatry. Amen. That's the gospel. God's grace intervening. God's grace for the hopeless. God's grace for the sinner. God's grace for the unrighteous. God's grace for the immoral. God's grace for the one who blows it. That's the gospel. The gospel is not do better. The gospel is not just try harder. The gospel is you can't look to the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. He did. He performed. He worked in your, on your behalf. That's the gospel of grace. It's superseded by God's grace. Th th this shocks you. It shocks you. It's radical. This is the type of grace that offends some people. Some people are mortified to think that a person on death row could experience the grace of God. I've heard people say before, I don't believe in that. Look what that man's done. Look at the horror he committed and the murders he did. If we can't find grace for the death row, we can't experience grace ourselves. We've committed acts of treason against the holy God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what we learn in Manasseh is there's hope for the guilty. There's hope for the condemned. There's hope for those who have absolutely blown it disastrous, destructive living. And yet God's grace is patient and ready to meet Manasseh. Some people ask, how in the world did God allow Manasseh to serve 55 years? It was the patient, long-suffering of our God. We see a man who was changed this morning, as we consider this, Mike earlier read in our call to worship a passage I think has so much relationship to this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I, I love this because you see evidence that his idolatry turned. He, he took out the idols that he put there. Isn't that a picture of God's grace? Transformation. God's grace removes the very idols that we have built. God's grace takes away. God's grace enables us to tear down, to remove the idols that we had erected within our heart. That's the grace of the Lord. This morning, so much to learn from Manasseh, so much to learn about the character of God. We see that God restored him to Jerusalem. There was a period of time that he was in captivity with Assyria over in the area of Babylon. It appears, and all of that means that God was gracious, that God brought him back to Jerusalem. Ultimately, there would still be judgment in 587, 586, but we see incredible, incredible grace. I want to read you one more passage, and we'll close. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This morning, we have hope because our God gives more grace. I heard a preacher that has influenced me greatly say, as long as God's grace is still operative, human failure is never final. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And Paul going through all the vices and all the sinful ways of the people at Corinth. And after going through the entire list, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This morning, look to Christ, believe on Jesus. By trusting in Christ, by grace through faith, his account is transferred to your account. Your sin is given to Christ. His righteousness is given to your account. That's the grace of salvation. Will you bow your head? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the miracle that took place in Manasseh's life. It's shocking. God, it reminds us of uh, a man on the Damascus Road. Reminds us of Paul. And Lord, I thank you that there's hope for sinners because of the good grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that Christ is our sinless substitute who paid the price on the cross of Calvary was buried in a tomb and three days later rose from the dead to show matter-of-factly 
that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient. I pray today all of our hope would be in him. I pray, oh God, this morning people would turn to you. I pray for those, Lord, that are seeking to follow you, they would just thank you with all their heart for your wonderful grace that has taken them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And, oh, Lord, I pray, oh, God, I pray that if there's someone here who sees their dirtiness, oh, God, I pray they would see the purity and the love and the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray they would see the cleansing power through his blood. I pray today would be their day of salvation. I pray today would be their moment, just like Manasseh experienced. It's in Jesus' name we pray.